Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to Cerebral Faith Live. I'm Evan Minton. Um, we did not do a stream for two weeks in a row because I was really, really sick and it lasted for two whole weeks. And even now, I still have a little bit of phlegm in my chest that I am struggling to get rid of. I'm well. I don't have any more symptoms other than this stuff in my chest. So you might hear me cough occasionally uh, throughout to tonight's broadcast, um, and I apologize for that in advance. And yesterday, would have we would have done this stream yesterday, but uh, the, there was a cable guy who came, someone had called him, because apparently the, the cable box running down to the TV at the very end of the house was uh, not working, and so he was working on that, and the internet went off and on several times, and so I... I scheduled it twice, if you follow the Cerebral Faith Facebook page, and um, I thought I gave, I, I thought I gave myself plenty of time. I thought he would be done by, you know, by four o'clock, by five o'clock, but no, it wasn't until six o'clock that he was, uh, that he got done. So, anyway, finally, we are, <coughs> we are finally getting to talking about Jesus's teaching on loving your enemies without much further ado let's get started exegeting the Sermon on the Mount part 8 loving your enemies in Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 42 you here you can see the here you can see the outline of the Sermon on the Mount that we have discussed so far there has been seven parts to this series uh, and we are doing part 8 today on loving your enemies and next week we're going to we're not we're going to be out of Matthew 5 and we're going to be into Matthew chapter 6 uh, where Jesus starts to talk about keeping your good deeds secret this is also the chapter where we find the Lord's prayer um, where we where we read Jesus's teaching on how not to be anxious how not to be worried uh, uh, it is sometimes called the antidote to anxiety and part 12 I'm actually going to go with a different name for that uh for that live stream uh, it's going to be called 
um, I don't know, wrapping up, Jesus winding down or something. Uh, and in that part, we're basically going to cover the entirety of Matthew chapter 7 in just one one video, just kind of streamlined through it. <coughs> so, but today we're talking about Jesus loving your enemies. And, Matthew, and he starts off his teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus says, quote, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, he says, quote, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the, his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. End quote. I'm including both of these sections here together because I believe they are part of the same teaching. Now, what Jesus must have said here must have been just as astonishing to his original listeners as it is to our ears today. Surely it makes more sense to love your neighbor. It makes sense to be kind to those who are kind to you, to care for your family members, your friends, to look out for those who've got your back. But your enemies? <clears throat> what is Jesus thinking here? Don't get revenge when someone wrongs you. If someone strikes us on one cheek, turn the other. But I want justice. I want so-and-so to pay for what they've done to me. I want that evil son of a you-know-what to suffer for what he's done to me. That's what our instincts say. Human nature, human nature is to retaliate when struck. Human nature is to pay back wrong for wrong, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But Jesus calls us to a higher standard. Now, there's several things to unpack here about Jesus' teaching on non-retaliation and on love of enemies, as there has been much confusion surrounding it. The first is did, whether or not Jesus endorsed pacifism. Um, Chris, the, this is the view that Christians should never resort to self-defense. If someone is um, attacking you, they're 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 beating you down or, or they pull a gun on you you're not to pull a gun on them or fight back you're just supposed to just stand there and take it don't resort to violence even if your life is in danger christians should never go to war we should and we should be anti death penalty we should just be completely nonviolent no matter what the situation might be just and that that's the interp that's the pacifist interpretation of jesus's teaching on turning the other cheek and loving your enemies. The second, the second inter uh, interpretation. Well, it's not a, it's not independent of the pacifist interpretation, but it, it is something that some people take away uh, from these these two 
passages, it's that Jesus contradicts the book of Leviticus. Uh, we'll see in a moment that Jesus said, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's actually something God said in the book of Leviticus. Uh, and the third thing, the third conclusion that has been drawn from this passage is that Jesus's command is unreasonable because it's impossible to love evil and cruel people. Now, I think the second, <clears throat> I think, excuse me, I think the second and third conclusions that have typically been drawn from these passages are the most troublesome of the three. I have come to the conclusion that Jesus's command is not at all unreasonable. And while it's not an easy command to carry out, it's certainly not easy to do. It is possible. Uh, it's not impossible, as so, as so many of us are prone to think. But before I get to the idea that Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament, uh, let's let me first address the idea that Jesus is endorsing full-blown pacifism. Is Jesus saying that Christians should never pick up arms against another person in any circumstance whatsoever? Topic one, did Jesus teach pacifism? Um, I can fully understand why many Christians are pacifists because of this passage. All of this talk about turning the other cheek when struck, not standing on your rights when wrongfully sued, but giving more belongings to the one suing you, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. All of this certainly sounds like Jesus never wants any of his followers under any circumstance to ever raise a fist, raise a sword, or fire a gun. Yet we must keep in mind that Jesus is speaking out specifically about personal revenge. It is when someone does something wrong to me, when someone offends me or screws me over, I as an individual am not to take vigilante justice. But this says nothing about whether or not the government can put a capital offender to death. Uh, send soldiers to war, assuming it's a just war and assuming uh, the theory of just war, just war theory holds. Um, it also says it also says nothing about whether or not I can use lethal force to protect my life or the lives of those around me. It is simply talking about being kind to those who are mean to you and stifling any desire for personal revenge. Uh, secondly, Luke chapter 3, verse 14 allows uh, military service. As um, Whoops, I didn't, I did not put the uh, verse in my notes. Hold on. That was an oversight. I'm going to have to pull it up on Bible Hub. Okay, Luke 3, 14 says, Then some soldiers asked him, that is John the Baptist, and what should we do? He replied, don't, and, and here, this is uh, John the Baptist. He's talking to um, some, Rome, uh, some Romans, uh, Roman soldiers or centurions who came up to him, uh, asked him a question while John, was, John the Baptist was preaching, and they asked him, what should we do? And John the Baptist responds, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And then the next verse says the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. That's all he says. He just says, don't, uh, don't extort money, 
Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. As Matt Perman says in uh, his article, Did Jesus Teach Pacifism on DesiringGod.org, quote, It is significant that John the Baptist did not tell the soldiers to leave the military when they asked him what it meant to repent. And some of the soldiers were questioning him, say, oh, that's why I didn't put it in my notes. Uh, it's because Matt Perman himself quotes from it. Um, Since it is therefore possible to live a godly life and yet be in the military, it must be engaging. It must be because engaging in war is not always sinful, end quote. <clears throat> Secondly, John 18.36 acknowledges the right of the sword to earthly kingdoms. Again, quoting from Matt Perman's article on DesiringGod.org, he writes, quote, In this passage, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it, as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. When Jesus says that if his kingdom were of this world, his servants would be fighting, he implies that it is right for kingdoms of this world to fight when the cause is just and circumstances require it. As Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms, our country on earth and heaven. Jesus shows us that it is never right to fight for the sake of a spiritual kingdom, but that it is right to fight on behalf of earthly kingdoms when necessary to counter evil and destruction, end quote. Thirdly, Romans chapter 13 outright says the government can use lethal force. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 5 says, quote, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of a matter of conscience, end quote. Again, Paul, Paul writes, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do, he asks, do you want to have, uh, do, you, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do you not want to be afraid of, of the ones in charge? Then do what is good. And you will have uh, you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God for you to, uh, of, of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God and avenger which brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Here, Paul affirms the government's right to use force in two ways. First, he says that it does not bear the sword for nothing. Second, he states that government is a minister of God when it executes vengeance against evildoers. Now, this doesn't mean that governments can do whatever, uh, that they can use force for whatever they please. Paul here says that the purpose of governmental force is to restrain evil and punish wrongdoing. Paul seems to recognize that it bears the sword rightly 
uh, he doesn't speak out against it. He doesn't he doesn't say anything that would make you think that the government bearing the sword is somehow inherently bad and ought not to be. He he talks about it as though it's something good. Moreover, governments uh, government entities are comprised of individual human persons, be they kings, emperors, or in the case of the United States, a president, a vice president, Congress, the military, etc. So let's say the U.S. government captured a really bad terrorist overseas and sentenced him to death. It would not therefore be wrong of the executioner to inject the terrorist with the lethal injection or put him in the electric chair or whatever means uh, the government in the government individuals use to, to put to death the evildoer. Same goes for capital offenders in, gen in general. There is nothing inherently sinful about being an executioner. There's nothing inherently sinful about being an executioner for a living. You are not taking criminal lives on your own initiative or for personal revenge. You are doing it as an agent of the state. When the law says certain offenders are to be put to death, you are simply doing your job. Fourthly, God is a warrior in the Old Testament. For example, see for example Exodus fifteen three and Trimper Longman the uh, Trimper Longman the third even has a book by this title. I haven't read it yet, but uh, I totally intend to. Trimper Longman is a great Old Testament scholar, and I really like the book that he co-wrote with John Walton, The Lost World of the Flood. Uh, even though I didn't agree with all of Longman and Walton's conclusions regarding that, I think it's a great um, compendium of you know, ancient Near Eastern flood accounts and, and you know, it is still, it's still a good book. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's got, a, he's got a whole book by this title, which comes from Exodus 15.3. But even a casual reader of the Old Testament, even if you just pick up a Bible and just go through, just casually read through the Old Testament, you can see that there's a lot of violence in the narratives sometimes even divinely mandated violence. Now, I won't get into the issue of the justice of the so-called Canaanite slaughter. Um, that has been covered on my website in blog post form. Uh, and Paul Copan has talked about it in an episode of the Cerebral Faith podcast prior to the podcast and the web show uh, becoming one. I recommend checking out that episode of the Cerebral Faith podcast. And like I said, be because it was... Um, this I because I had this interview with Copan before I was doing Cerebral Faith Live, or at the very least, it was before I decided to make the audio of the live YouTube show be the audio for the audio podcast. Um, it's only available in audio form, but you can get it. You can access the Cerebral Faith podcast on Stitcher, Podbeans, iTunes, or just go on CerebralFaith.net and go to the podcast section of the website. Um, the episode number is episode 115, and the the episode is titled, Episode 115, Does the Old Testament Cast God in a Bad Light? with Paul Copan. Um, anyway, David was a warrior. He, he killed Goliath. He fought lots of Philistines, and yet God didn't condemn any of it. He himself ordered Israel to go to war with the Canaanites, and he never told King David to disband and <coughs> to excuse me to disband his military or never send them into battle. 
He never condemned David for slinging a rock at Goliath. Indeed, it's implied that this Nephilim was killed by this shepherd boy because God was on his side. In Genesis 14, we read of Abraham's nephew being captured by some people from Sodom. Verses 14 to 16 say, quote, When Abram heard that his nephew had been captured, he called together all the fighting men in his camp, 318 in all, and pursued the four kings all by the way to Dan. There he divided his men into groups, attacked the enemy by night, and he and defeated them. He chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, and got back all the loot that had been taken. He also brought back his nephew his nephew Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the prisoners and the other prisoners. End quote. And not once does Yahweh condemn Abraham for his actions in the text. Many more examples could be cited, but suffice it to say, God does not seem to have a problem against all fighting between all parties at all times and all places. That's because Jesus isn't teaching pacifism. Topic two, does, uh, the, does Jesus contradict the Old Testament? Does Jesus contradict the Old Testament? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, quote, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, end quote. Uh, thousands of years before that, God said, quote, if a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be, uh, so it shall, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. End quote. That's from Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 to 20. But isn't this a contradiction? In the Old Testament, God says, hey, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Fracture for fracture. If a man injures his neighbor, uh, this, that same affliction shall be put upon him. And Jesus says, well, actually, no. Uh, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. It seems like God is saying, "Get in the Old Testament, get retaliation. But then Jesus comes along and says, don't get retaliation. In Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 to 22, is about crime and punishment. It's not a license for personal revenge. People in Jesus' day took that verse out of context to justify personal revenge. In Leviticus, we have God saying to Moses that if one man causes another man injury, then the man who was done wrong uh, should, should do the same thing to him. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if someone strikes you on the left cheek, Turn the other also. People would use the Leviticus verse to say, oh, hey, God, I can, if someone hit me, I can hit him back. Because, you know, look at this verse. And I mean, they didn't have chapter verse divisions back then, but look at this phrase in Leviticus. It's the, but if you look at that saying of God in its wider context, the Leviticus passage reveals this passage was not about revenge at all. It's about judicial punishment. God was telling Moses that anyone, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, anyone who 
commits a crime should have a punishment that that fits that crime and that a punishment that was too harsh for the crime committed was unacceptable so for example if a man murdered another man capital punishment should be administered leviticus 24:17 anyone who takes the life of an of another animal must buy a replacement for that animal or at least take the life of his own in leviticus 24:28 God was trying to make sure that people weren't punished too severely for whatever crime they committed. The punishment much must match the crime. However, just like in the modern era, people rip Bible passages out of context to try to support whatever they do. Just as people today rip Matthew 7-1 right out of its context to just to condemn all judging, and we'll get to that later in the series, so people in Jesus' day ripped Leviticus 24, 19-20 out of its context in order to justify getting revenge on others. This is what Jesus is was doing in Matthew 5. Jesus was setting the record straight. He was basically saying, no, this verse doesn't mean what you think it means. It sounds like he's contradicting the Old Testament, though, at first glance. That's why, I, as I argued a few weeks ago, that's why Jesus made the disclaimer that he did in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Don't think that I come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was Second Temple Jews speak for uh, the Old Testament or the Tanakh. Don't think that I've come to set aside the canon of Scripture. Instead, I've not, I've not just come to... Um, I've not, I'm not only setting it aside, but I'm fulfilling it. Topic three, if Jesus, is Jesus' command unreasonable because it's impossible to love the unlovable? In the Expositor's Bible Commentary, <clears throat> um, D.A. Carson writes, quote, Jesus allowed no casuistry. Ca uh, the real distinction indicated by the law is love, ri uh, rich and costly, and extended even to enemies. Many take the verb love, agapao, and the noun agape as always signifying self-giving, regardless of emotion. For instance, Hill, in Matthew, comments on this passage, the love which is inculcated is not a matter of sentiment and emotion, but as always in the Old Testament and New Testament of concrete action. If this were so, 1 Corinthians 13.3 could not disavow love that gives everything to the poor and suffers even to martyrdom, for these are concrete actions. The same verb is used when Amnon incestuously loves his sister Tamar, 2 Samuel 13.1. When Damas, because he, I'm going to take my hat off because it's, it's hot in here, even though I've got the air conditioner going. Uh, when Damas, because he loves this world, 2 Timothy 4.10, forsakes Paul, and when tax collectors love those who love them, Matthew 5.46. The rise of this word in Greek, uh, this word group in Greek, is well traced by Robert Jolie. Christians doubtless took over the word group and largely filled it with their own content, but the content of that love is not based on a presupposed definition but on Jesus' teaching and example, to love one's enemies, though it must result in doing them good. Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 33, and praying for them, Matthew 5, 44, cannot justly be restricted 
to activities devoid of any concern, sentiment, or emotion. Like the English verb to love, agapo ranges widely from debased and selfish actions to generous, warm, uh, costly self-sacrifice for another's good. There is no reason to think the verb here in Matthew does not include emotion as well as actions, end quote. Now, I am in the camp, I would argue that you can love someone without feeling anything. <coughs> you don't you don't have to feel warm and warm and fuzzy things in order to love someone. And I I, I think this commentary by Carson is good in a lot of places. But in this particular teaching of Jesus, I think he gets it severely wrong. I think the if the command to love your enemies was to feel warm and fuzzy feelings towards cruel and despicable people, that would indeed be reasonable. If that's what Jesus is saying, then that is definitely unreasonable. That is, that is an unreasonable command. Jesus might as well command me to fly. Not, not in an airplane, but like a bird. Jesus might as well command me to, to do something as, as absurd as that. Um, but I don't think that is what Jesus is commanding us. If, if it were what Jesus was commanding us, that, that's, that, that would be absurd, because who, who in the world can feel fondly who, <clears throat> towards someone who treats them badly, persecutes them, uh, someone who is cruel to you, and so on. I mean, you can control your actions, but you can't control how you feel. Your feelings are not subject to your direct will. I can't just decide to feel happy, you know, at the spur of the moment. I can't decide just to feel sad or angry or worried, or I, I can't just be like, okay, I'm going to choose to feel angry, or I'm going to choose not to feel angry right now. No, that's stupid. Fond feelings sometimes can flow from doing good even to an enemy. As C.S. Lewis once put it, quote, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him, end quote. Do the action of love first. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat, even though you may do it through gritted teeth, even though you may do it with a nauseous feeling in your stomach. If, you know, you may... Do it through gritted teeth. Do it with a nauseated feeling in your stomach. If your enemy is thirsty, give him to drink. Give something to drink, even though you may have a strong desire to bash him over the head with the pitcher. I will also say that we should always try to like someone. We should try to soften our hearts towards someone. We should try not to have hard hearts toward anyone. And in my experience, praying for God to help us with that doing acts of kindness for those who have abused us, even if we don't feel like doing it, and refusing to hold on to resentful emotions, that usually helps. That usually helps to soften the heart <coughs> over time. 
Um, as C.S. Lewis said in the above quote, essentially, he said, do the acts of love first and feelings of fondness may follow. Be loving first and wait for your heart to catch up. Don't wait until you like someone or you feel loving towards them, whether they're an enemy or not. Don't wait until you feel a certain way towards someone before you show kindness to them. Do the act of kindness regardless of your emotion. And when you do, you may find your heart gradually warming to the person over time. But in the final analysis, love and like are not synonyms. Love is not just a digivolution of like, a, a bigger, stronger form of like. Loving someone is not just a bigger, stronger form of liking someone. Like, Greymon is a bigger, stronger form of Agumon. They're totally different categories. One may bring about the other, but they're not identical. A is A. A is not non-A. But what about Carson's biblical arguments that love cannot be given absent of sentiment? Let's examine those. Since 1 Corinthians 13 uh, was brought up in one of Carson's points, let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 8 says, quote, <clears throat> If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is, where there is knowledge, it will pass away. End quote. Now, looking at this passage, you'll find very little by way of emotion in here. It says, love is kind. Now, do you have to feel a certain way in order to be kind to someone? Even if I dislike you, I am showing love to you. I'm being kind to you by giving you money when you are down on your luck. Or giving you something to eat when you're hungry. I don't have to like you to be kind to you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Do I have to like someone to refuse to keep track of how many times they've sinned against me and how many and how many sins they've committed against me? Of course not. <clears throat> Love does not dishonor others. Again, whatever counts as dishonor, do I have to feel warm and fuzzy when I think about you? In order to avoid doing that, in order to avoid dishonoring you? Slapping someone with the back of the hand was considered a great insult in Jesus' culture. It didn't just hurt, it was, it was insulting to one's honor. And Greco-Roman and Jewish culture back then, was, uh, it was a 
honor shame culture where that meant a way more than it does in ours. I may not like you, but I can avoid backhand slapping you. I can avoid publicly shaming you regardless of how I feel about you. Love always protects. Do I have to like you to protect you? Love is patient. While this may seem like an emotion, I would argue that it really isn't. Regardless of how antsy I may feel, I can choose not to express it. I can choose... We, we all know that impatience is something that can be expressed or stifled. <clears throat> I can choose not to say, hurry up, we don't have all day. The only places emotions are even mentioned are things such as love is not easily angered and love rejoices in the truth. So indeed, we do have a couple of mentions of emotions here, but then it's, it is not my argument that love is never part, uh, that feelings are never a part of love, that love is always divorced from feelings. Sometimes I may feel fondly for someone, and that is the motivation. The, the, the fond feelings are the reason I do acts of love for someone. I may feel fondly for someone, and that is why I choose to love them via my actions. Sometimes I choose to love someone via my actions, and I don't feel warm towards them, but over time, my, my good choices, my loving choices, shape my cold and callous heart and I begin to feel warmly towards them. To like someone may prompt you to love them, or vice versa. All I'm, arguing, all I'm arguing here is that love is not synonymous. It's not identical with love, with, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings, to the extent that, as Carson does, if the emotion is absent, then love is absent, and you're not obeying Jesus' command to love your enemies. <clears throat> or love anyone, for that matter, if you don't have sentimental feelings towards them. First Corinthians 13, the famous passage of love, in the, the famous love passage that's read at so many, so many marriages, I almost said funerals, it might be read at some funerals, who knows. Um, it has hardly any mentions of emotions. It is an action-dominant passage. And so the third reason that Carson is wrong is that one of the key texts he appeals to really mitigates against his view. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about act after act after act after act, and it hardly talks about feelings at all, really in only two places. Of course, not being easily angered and rejoicing, delighting in the truth, are emotions. Granted, but I agree with most commentators that 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of perfect love. And in our fallen state, none of us loves perfectly. <clears throat> it may be that to perfectly love our enemies, we may need to go through that process that I talked about. And as C.S. Lewis talked about in the, in the quote that, that I used, that process of loving actions first and letting your emotions follow suit. It may be that from the get-go, you are able to be patient 
uh, patient with and kind to your enemies, not to boast, not to dishonor your enemies, not to be self-seeking, but to see his good, etc. <clears throat> These are all actions that you can do that have no bearing on your emotional state. You just have to choose to do them. I also agree with commentators who would say that since, as 1 John 4, 8 says, that God is love, that 1 Corinthians 13 is a really good profile description of who God is. When you read 1 Corinthians 13 and see love is blank, love is blank, love is blank, uh, God, you, can, you can replace the word love with God. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God is not proud, etc., etc. And God as... God, as a maximally great being, certainly loves with a perfect love. He loves all people with a perfect love all the time. Now let's look at his. Um, let's look at other verses that uh, Carson appeals to, such as Second Samuel thirteen one and Second Timothy four ten. Let's read both of these. First is Second Samuel thirteen one. Quote, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. End quote. Second Timothy chapter four, verses nine to ten. Quote, Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved uh, because he loved this world, has deserted me, and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. End quote. What should we do with Carson's appeal to 2 Samuel 13.1 and 2 Timothy 4.10? It is possible that perhaps, as some modern Westerners use the word love as synonymous with infatuation and feelings of fondness, ancient Greek speakers did the same with their four words describing the four loves. Um, even I who I don't consider love to be an emotion, will nevertheless use the word love in that way because I'm accustomed to the idioms of my culture. I just fell in love with the new sandwich at, the, at my favorite restaurant. I love that movie. I love this anime. I love going for a walk on a sunny spring day. When I say things like this, I am not contradicting my belief that love is not an emotion. I'm just, I am just captive to the idioms of my culture. I speak this way in spite of myself, um, you could say. Perhaps Paul the Apostle used agape to, to refer to fond feelings likewise. The real thorn in my hypothesis is 1 Corinthians 13.3, for here Paul describes loving actions and says, if I do these, you know, these these really good things, and I do not have love, I gain nothing. <clears throat> what should we do with that? That, I think, is probably the strongest argument that D.A. Carson brings in support for his sentimental interpretation of love your enemies. But BibleRef.com provides one possible answer, and I think it's a good one. It says, quote, why would someone give away all their money or even their life if not out of love for Christ and others? Perhaps a person might do such a thing for pride or glory or in a foolish attempt to earn God's favor. 
Love, though, is is the only motive that makes such sacrifices worthwhile, end quote. The question, why would you do such extreme acts as give away everything you have, or turn your body over, if not out of love, uh, is a good question. If Thomas Aquinas was right to define love as a desire and will for the best of others, then if my motive is not to better my neighbor or my enemy, to leave, to leave them with more benefits than what they started, or none at all, then it is not love. While I hold strongly that love need not be attached to feelings of fondness, I would never say that love is detached from motive. If you do loving things for motives other than to benefit the person to whom you are doing loving things for, <clears throat> then you have not love. If your motive for doing something nice uh, for someone in the future is so that they'll return the favor, that's not love. That's manipulation. If you give me food, water, food, water, clothing, and shelter in order to place me in your debt, which you, uh, which you can call upon at any time, that's not love. If you do a hundred nice things for me just so that others will see just how, just how Christian you are, that's not love. And Jesus says, Jesus has much to say about this. Um, very, very shortly after this section in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Now, finally, let's, let's come back to the passages in question, and let's ask, where is the concept of sentiment? Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. Is lack of resistance an emotional state? I don't think so. Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Turning the other cheek is an action, not a feeling. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now tell me, do you have to be in a certain emotional state in order to hand over an article of clothing, such as a cloak, to someone? No. No matter how I'm feeling, I can obey this command. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Excuse me. Um, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, interesting uh, cultural context uh, factoid here, um, that what Jesus is referring to here is what has been called the Roman mile. Roman soldiers, if they had a wagon full of stuff to pull or any burden to carry, they would make uh, any nearby citizens of the countries they conquered carry the burden or pull the wagon for them. You can you can imagine, given how much the Jews hated the Romans, how shocking of a statement that would be. What? Go another mile? Do more for those darn Romans than what they required of me? You've got to be kidding. I wouldn't even go the first mile if I had a choice. 
But Jesus here tells them, hey, when those Romans come and make you carry your burden for a thousand paces, go another thousand paces. Love your enemies. Now, is going two miles an emotion? No, no, it is not. If loving your enemies so required sentimentality as Carson insists, then why is Jesus why is Jesus' whole passage here full of nothing but actions? <clears throat> I mean Jesus Jesus could have slid in a little command to give the Romans a smile <laughs> when they when they would go the, the thousand paces, right? Uh, and don't forget to smile. Do it, do it with a smile on your face. Do it with a cheerful dis, uh, a cheerful demeanor. But he never says that. He, he could have said, hey, when someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also and let your heart flutter because of how much you love them. No. Um, he, no, he did not say that. Where are the emotions, Dr. Carson? Where? Where, where are they? I can't find them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, quote and end quote. In this passage, Jesus gives an example of how God loves his enemies. He says that God causes his reign to fall on the evil and the good, <clears throat> and causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. In ancient Israel, and in ancient times in general, agriculture was immensely important. A sizable portion of the population were farmers. You wanted rain and sun on your crops. It would... It was more on their mind than it is even in ours. <coughs> Jesus gives this as an example of God being kind to both those who are good and those who are evil. He's basically saying, love your enemies. God does this. Here are a couple of, of examples of how God does this. It's not an exhaustive list, of course, because Jesus died for the world, as First John 2, 2 says, and John 3, 16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, basically while we were still God's enemies, Christ, God, the, the son, the second person of the Trinity, died for us. But those are, you know, the, the, um, the sun rising on the evil and the good, rain on the, on the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous, those are a couple of of examples of how God is kind even to his enemies. And so Jesus is basically saying, hey, look, God loves his enemies. You do, as, uh, you follow suit. You do likewise. But where are the emotions in this passage? Causing, <coughs> excuse me, causing sun and rain aren't feelings. Jesus says, if you greet only people, only your own people, what are you doing more than others? And he says, hey, even the pagans do that. But there's nothing inherently emotional about greeting someone. I can say, hello, how are you doing? Welcome. Come, come into my home, regardless of how I feel about you. I don't, have to, I don't have to like you in order to do that. 
Love is not identical to a feeling. Jesus just wants you to act benevolently towards your enemies, whether you feel like it or not. And again, I would argue that if you do this and you do this consistently, your heart will warm. Uh, you, those sentimental feelings most likely will <coughs> most likely will come eventually. Um, you, you know, as Ken Keithley says in Salvation and Sovereignty, a Molinist approach, um, we, how did he put it? We we make choices, and our choices uh, we make choices, and our choices make us. Our choices can shape who we are over time. By the way, Jesus' teachings in these two back-to-back -back passages represent two sides of the same coin. The first half is a command of Jesus not not to. Ex the first is a, is is an expression. It's a negative. Don't express hatred. The second is a positive command. Do show love. Firstly, don't show hatred. Secondly, do show love. Um, don't just refrain from showing hatred, but actively show love. Before we wrap up, I would like to add some additional thoughts on Jesus' teaching here. First, if you love your enemies, you will be a powerful witness to the unbelieving world. To love those who are unlovable, unkind, cruel to you, to not retaliate even when it is even if and when it is within your legal and moral rights to do so, like in a court of law setting, and and you're the plaintiff. Uh, doing this, obeying this command, will absolutely set you apart from the the rest of the world, whose philosophy is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and whose very instinct is to repay wrong for wrong. <clears throat> I remember years ago uh, seeing a story on the 700 Club um, on CBN, which really struck me, and it, and it stuck with me all these years. Um, and recently, in preparing the slides for tonight's web show slash podcast, I was able to track down the article which corresponded to it. I have a link here on the slides, which you can go to when I, whenever I get around to you know putting a, a link to the Google Drive uh, so you can access these slides. Uh, the article talks about a woman named Mary Johnson, and she has a son named, um, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, La Lara, Lara Meun who was killed in the early 1990s. The murderer was a 16-year-old named Oshea Israel. Mary said that she struggled with hatred towards her son's killer for many years, but she was convicted by the Holy Spirit because the Bible says you need to forgive in order to be forgiven. If you don't forgive others when they sin against you, neither will God forgive you of your sins. So she started praying to God to expel all of the hatred out of her heart and to help her forgive her son's killer. And she not only prayed for herself to get rid of all the, the hatred and the, the anger, but she prayed for Oshea as well. And as uh, Audra Hanley wrote, she's the, she's the author of this article here, um, 
which I, I linked to in the slides, uh, as she, she writes, quote, as Mary started to change, so did the person she was praying for, end quote. In 2005, Mary contacted the Department of Corrections and requested a face-to-face -face meeting with O'Shea. In the article, she told CBN that it was that she needed to truly know whether she had forgiven him or, and whether or not all of that hatred in her heart was truly gone. Um, when Mary and O'Shea, o O'Shea met face-to-face, -face, Mary told O'Shea that she had forgiven him for the murder of her son. And O'Shea was basically like, how can this be? What I did was unforgivable. And Mary responded that <clears throat> she could do it because of who was in her. Um, and here is a screenshot of, of the article. And I'm going to read a small excerpt from it, just the, the last few paragraphs. Mary and O'Shea, quote, Mary and O'Shea continued to me, and they eventually began speaking in prisons about forgiveness and reconciliation. The more and more we spoke, the more our bond started to grow, O'Shea said. And Mary has turned into one of my uh, biggest supporters. She worries about me even when I'm not worried about myself, and that's something a mother does. O'Shea was released from prison in 2010, and Mary arranged his homecoming party. I walked in and saw all of these people that I didn't know who only knew of me because of the pain and the hurt I caused. But I walked in, but I walk in and get hugs. I walk in and get smiles, O'Shea said. That is another part of the forgiveness. The community forgave me. Her friends were able to forgive me. Today, O'Shea and Mary are next door neighbors. They speak all over the country about the power of forgiveness. I am so grateful of who I am today in God that I am not that person I used to be uh, because, full of all that junk, Mary said. Being on the other side of forgiveness is important in my life because it made me free to be myself, O'Shea said. I can really live and enjoy life. I can enjoy people. I can enjoy being home. I can enjoy laughing. Outside of that, I've got a huge family now. Unforgiveness is a dangerous thing, and I tell you, when you allow the Holy Spirit to release you, oh my, what freedom, what freedom there is, Mary said. You'll be amazed at where you'll be in your life. End quote. What an, what an amazing testimony. I think this is a very powerful display of the Holy Spirit's power to transform a person from the inside out. Wouldn't you agree? What this guy O'Shea did was, from a human standpoint, unforgivable. It was absolutely atrocious. This woman suffered so much because her child was ripped away from her. And yet, she was able not to just to forgive him, not to just let bygones be bygones, not just forgive him, not just let bygones be bygones, but she actually developed a friendship with him. My goodness, this is what it means. This is what it means for your life to be an apologetic. This is what it means for your life to be an apologetic. How can you hear a story like this and not be convinced by the power of the gospel? If you're watching this stream on YouTube 
uh, either live or on playback, or if you're listening to this on the audio podcast later on, I want you to know that this power is available to you. If you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, he will come into your heart, he will forgive you of your sins, and he will empower you to forgive others who have badly wounded you. Uh, have you experienced pain? Have you experienced, have you been betrayed by friends? Hate is a terrible thing to stew in. It erodes you from the inside out. God can heal your wounds and he can get that toxin out of your soul. He can, he can do it for you. He can do for you what he did for Mary Johnson. Just call out to him. Just ask him. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, quote, For he made him who knew no sin to be him for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. End quote. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 says, quote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. End quote. Titus 3.5 says, quote, He saved us, not because of works done, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Romans 10.9 says, quote, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, end quote. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, quote, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, end quote. And John chapter 5, verse 24 says, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believe him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, end quote. That is the end of tonight's presentation. If you want more apologetics content, blogs, podcasts, and videos, check out www.cerebralfaith.net. Um, and if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like the video and subscribe and turn on notifications. Hit that bell icon so that you will know when I'm going live, when I'm having another stream, and you can attend live. And you you will you, I interact with the live chat. I don't interact with it during the slides. But I do have a period of Q&A, 30 minutes, where I interact with the live chat. I ask, they ask questions, they leave comments, and I interact with them. <clears throat> so turn on notifications and it will come up on your phone. Hey, Cerebral Faith video is going live and you can attend. Uh, and you don't have to be dependent on the YouTube algorithm or um, the Facebook algorithm um, to tell you, whenever I post the stream saying, hey, I'm going live in an hour or whatever. Um, and if you would like to support this ministry financially, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Now on patreon.com, I have started, I've started releasing CFL snippets. Uh, CFL is the uh, acronym or uh, the abbreviation for cerebral faith live. <clears throat> and these are snippets of my live streams um, to accommodate those who maybe don't want to watch a one hour presentation or a one hour interview. Um, but they just, maybe I talk about several topics in one stream, in one presentation, 
Um, and maybe they just want to, maybe they just want to hear what I have to say about that one topic. Well, I've been releasing several excerpts from my various streams from last year and from this year as uh, shorter videos. Um, and the links to the excerpts, the shortened forms, uh, are available early for patrons. Uh, you also will get early access to blog posts, although I haven't been blogging uh, very much uh, as of the past you know, year, year and a half. But when I stop streaming for the year, because this is the podcast and the web show are going to be um, a seasonal thing. It's going to be a yearly thing that starts, starts in May and runs September, October. Um, and maybe I'll have a couple of interseasonal debates like I did last year. Like I had a debate between Fuzz Rana and Aaron Yilmaz on whether God used evolution or not. Um, that debate took place in December, even though I pretty much was done streaming for the year. You know, de depends on if I have like anything special to do, like a debate between um, two academics or something. Um, but for the most part, it's going to be a seasonal thing. It's going to like start in the start in the early, start in the spring and kind of run through the summer and kind of end in the fall. And I'm really during the the colder months, I really am going to devote more time to study and research and writing. Um, kind of like, you know, kind of having it be like it was before I started making any non-written content like this. Um, but uh, yeah, the podcast, the audio podcast, the live webinar, but you will be getting uh, excerpts, the short videos up here on the YouTube channel during the colder months. <clears throat> and, um, but you, you'll also get, you know, live, you'll also get um, early access to the blog post and you'll get shout outs on the podcast. Those are just some of the benefits that you can get. You can go to the Patreon page to, um, to hear of others. And it really helps. It really helps to pay for uh, the stuff I use to make this content. So I want to give a shout out to to fill that one benefit I mentioned. David Shannon, Red Blade Flames, Steel Cat, Slammer In, Andrew Melnick, Nathan Hamilton, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And again, the um, link to the Patreon site is www.patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. Again, don't forget to like the video and subscribe. And if you're you know, if you're a listener of the audio podcast, go leave a review of the uh, of the podcast on iTunes. Peace out, God bless, and oh, by the way, um, next Saturday, um, <clears throat> three p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That would be noon Pacific Standard Time. Come back to the YouTube channel, and uh, I will be doing. You know, unless something happens to preempt it like it did the past three weeks. Hopefully that is not the case. <clears throat> but the plan, anyway, is to do another stream on Saturday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. And I'll be talking about, we'll be getting into Matthew 6. We'll be continuing the Sermon on the Mount series, and um, we'll be talking about 
Jesus' command to keep your good deeds secret. And um, yeah, we've wrapped, we finally wrapped up Matthew chapter 5. So come back next week, Saturday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. Peace out, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you.